Welcome to the RSP Quick Game. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, brought to you by the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, available April 1st, the pre-draft. We already have over 150 players scouted. Um, probably have another dozen or two dozen more, depending on how little sleep I get. And, uh, you know, we'll be ready to roll. You'll have, you know, pre-draft profiles that are very extensive that go through checklists that have... Some of them have over 100 points of criteria that we're looking at. All on a 100-point scale, very intuitive to look at. Been around since 2006. If you don't know about it, it's because people who are beating you in your leagues, in dynasty leagues, aren't telling you about it. Or they're finally, and if they have, they're finally being generous because they want some competition now. So you can get it available at $21.95 at mattwaldman.com and a percentage of the sales up to $5,000 goes to darkness to light d2l.org. You can find out more about that organization, um, you know, at d2l.org. It's a organization de dedicated to preventing child abuse, sexual abuse of children, um, through preventative training measures, as well as helping people learn how to handle the, um, victimization of children so that they can um you know be true allies and not unintentionally hurt them further so you can find more again detail.org so we've got a big show in store we've got a lot of senior bowl stuff mark we've got a two super bowl teams finally we know who's going um you know lots of nfl draft evaluation types of things some fun stories but let's start off with the big story because it pretty much popped up <laughs> as I was making the show sheet. Um, and that is, as everyone pretty much who follows the NFL knows, Brian Flores finally... She's the Commanders! Yes, the Washington that's Commanders. That's it, that's it, that's yeah, it. There it is. That's it, that's it, that's it, yeah. I was going to say the Washington Cosbys, or is that too low? I don't know. That's too crazy. Okay. <laughs> Knowing Daniel Snyder, he might thought thought that was a good idea. But... um. You know, the Washington Cosbys, but now I'm going to get hate mail from Washington fans. But uh, but seriously now, Brian Flores. Brian Flores filed a class action suit against the NFL. Um, among the things in the, in the briefing, yeah, I don't have the right terminology, but I'm sure that Mark and my wife could tell me that. Um, but uh, among that is that he alleges that um, Stephen Ross um, tried to set up a meeting with a, an impromptu, quote-unquote, impromptu meeting with a quarterback prospect that he turned down and walked away from because he knew that it was some bullshit. And uh, allegedly that Stephen Ross offered to pay him a $100,000 bonus per game for every game that was lost. Basically say, alleging that the Miami Dolphins wanted to incentivize the coach to fix games. That's how I'm interpreting it. That may not be the legal interpretation, but that's essentially, he's alleging that, that basically Stephen Ross wanted to violate the integrity of the game in a much larger scale than Paul Herning or Alex Karras ever did betting on sports back in the, what, 60s? Early 60s? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, was it early seven? It was sixties or seventies. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was during that time, but uh, yeah. So I guess I would love to know, Mark, whatever angle you want to take on it—the legal angle. You know, it doesn't. A lot of this is he said, she said. I'm sure you know, the angle for 
Flores in terms of why he decided to do it in terms of knowing that he's blowing up his career. You know, he pretty much said, you know, this was, I know I'm blowing up my coaching opportunity in the NFL. Though as my wife, who who certainly has a marketing background, would say any smart person in the NFL would probably try and hire him right now, even with the suit and knowing what's going on, to even half-heartedly try and make this look good. But I then explained what the NFL did in response about two hours later, which was, we've investigated everything, and, and we don't see any presence of wrongdoing, and these claims are false, and we're going to fight it which she then rolled her eyes and laughed and said, yep, nothing surprises me after, you know, what you tell me about what goes on in this league. And there we have it. So what what are your thoughts on this sprawling mess? There's a lot. How much time do you have? Um, (laughs) Let's start here. I, I think this is important and we shouldn't overlook it. Brian Flores is 40 years old. And when this broke... I immediately started talking with some people with organizations, both at the pro and the college level. I started talking to people, uh, other media people in and around this industry. And the overwhelming first blush reaction was Flores might get hired as a head coach right now in this cycle. But the fact that he is punting on potentially 30 years of coaching opportunities to do this, I think speaks volumes. I think it is an incredibly brave move. And I, I think it's one of those, like, this is bigger than me kind of decisions kind of moments. Because it's not like it's, say, uh, a Marvin Lewis or a Hugh Jackson who are saying, look, you know, this has been going on. There's somebody at the end of their coaching career, perhaps. This is somebody who's just starting out, who who's interviewing for jobs as we speak, who had an interview with the Saints on Tuesday. And he's saying, you know what? I'm still doing this because this is bigger than me. Who and, teams, I think that's, and just to interrupt real quickly, who we just said a few weeks ago, you know, and everyone in the media said a few weeks ago, how the hell did the Miami Dolphins fire this guy? Right. And he should be candidate number one, right. um, you know, in terms of, you know, his track record early on and what he did in, yep. with that organization. Yeah. And so, so, so out of the gate, the fact that he's doing that, I, I think is extremely impressive. Um, as far as the proposed class action, I did not do a lot of class action work when I was a practice attorney. Thankfully, I know somebody who does my wife, she does a lot of class action and we, we went through it last night together. Um, you know, after the kids were in bed. You know, that's 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 a fun husband wife thing to do, right? Go through a class action lawsuit. Um, and, and something she pointed out to me that I think is also sort of important. It might be tough to get this, as the technical term is, certified as a proposed class. That's going to be tough to prove from a sort of legal standpoint. Because if you think about what class actions are supposed to, how they're supposed to work, you know, Say you have a credit card with Bank X and you get that little mailer that says, hey, you had a credit card with Bank X, but the the terms and conditions of that credit card were fraudulent. And so as somebody, you are a potential member of the proposed class. Everybody that had that credit card, it's the same generic basic facts of the case. And the way class actions are set up or supposed to be set up and supposed to work is thousands of plaintiffs have the same exact argument. It will be different here. 
because the argument that say Brian Flores has might be different than the one that a Steve Wilkes has, that a Terrell Austin has, that a you know Eric Jim Caldwell has. Yeah, it's it, wildly different stuff, and, and so that part might be tough for them to get certified. But I do think that it doesn't mean. I don't think we should go down the road that, oh, if it doesn't get certified, these are without merit. They're saying the, the judge is saying this doesn't have merit. No, no, that that that's different. That's completely different. And so if six months from now, four months from now, three months from now, we hear, oh, a judge in the Southern District, if you know, it has denied class certification of this. It doesn't mean that they're throwing it out. It means that we can't group five, 10, 12, 20 coaches together because they have different sets of facts, you know. Eric Bieniemy's resume for a head coaching spot with the Denver Broncos is different than Brian Flores's job potential with the New York Giants. Like there's different factors. It's not like they're the same exact candidate getting denied jobs. And so if and when that denial of certification comes, don't read into it that these claims don't have merit. They do have merit. And I, I think it's pretty clear. Anybody that's like followed the NFL for a while knows that, while the intentions of the Rooney rule might've been well and good at the start, the application of the Rooney rule has as Brian Flores and his lawyers outlined led to a lot of people just checking boxes, just checking boxes. Hey, we got to go interview somebody to satisfy the Rooney rule requirement before we hire the guy we wanted. And that's an unfortunate sort of offspring of the Rooney rule. So how do we fix that? And I think the proposed, like six or seven things that they're asking for. I, I think the first one is the most important one. Finding ways for minority owners to have a pathway into ownership for NFL teams. Because anybody would tell you representation matters and who the decision makers are at the top matter. And when you're looking at, and they included sort of the photo arrays of the owners, like the people that are making the big decisions, they look men. like you and me. They look like madmen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I do think that that's sort of how this and where this sort of start. And, and so I think that's important. The other thing that I think that will happen at 365 Park Avenue. I understand why the attorneys put in this stuff about Ross and tanking and, you know, $100,000 bonuses for losing games. I understand why they put that in. I am afraid in a way that the NFL is going to latch onto that, that the NFL is going to look at that because we know what the shield does when it comes to the integrity of the game. I have a Wells report to remind people of about the air pressure in footballs when it comes to how the NFL feels about the integrity of the game. So when they have an opportunity to use laser eye focus on the integrity of the game issues and potentially put the other stuff on the back burner, they're going to go right to that. And so I think that they might have given them sort of an off ramp to sort of focus all of the investigation, all the attention on the integrity of the game issues and the, the ties with Stephen Ross and a gambling company that he's invested in. And what is this doing for all our partnership with gambling companies and with these sports book houses? And they're going to focus on that. And I'm afraid it might put the other stuff to the side. So I know that's a lot, but that's kind of my initial sort of three-pronged approach to this right now. I think it's an excellent three-pronged approach. You know, it allows you to be able to put a big handle on those three prongs and be able to shovel the manure that all this is, you know, quite effectively without getting it on any of your shoes. So, yeah. so well done, Mark, I would say. Um, but, you know, the... 
I couldn't. I, I think the point that you make about the unintentional outcome of you know talking about the Stephen Ross deal and how the NFL will focus on that first, I think, is dead on. Um, and you know, it, to separate the two because they're both are extremely important. You know, it is important in this gambling you know environment. Yeah. But this has to happen. I mean, I think they do need to. If they if they can substantiate this claim, then Stephen Ross needs to sell the team. Yeah. You know, that that's uh, there's there's no other answer than to get than dump him at the side of the road and and find somebody else to run the Miami Dolphins because you can't do that. You you can't put you can't open that door to where what would he do if if this were players? Would the next step is. Now he's is if he's going to pay a coach, he could pay key players. If the coach doesn't play ball, he could do this. And there may be people who say, "Well, what's to, who's to think that the NFL hasn't already done this?" Well, certainly that's very possible that these things could already be have happened. That's right. for sure. You, you know, but what we can focus on, but that's not a reason to say that it that this doesn't matter, because at some point. You know, it's kind of like saying that when a, you know, when a cop abuses his authority to say, well, it's always happened. So what does it matter? You know, that's that's the same type of thing. Or if a company's defrauding people, you know, it's, you know, and the comp and the Miami Dolphins, if this is true, they're defrauding their fans. They're defrauding yeah. the league, you know, with this behavior. So, yeah, absolutely. This needs to be investigated. Um, regardless of whether it's happened before, and it serves notice to other teams if they if they do take this seriously and investigate it. Now, as for the the Brian Flores issue, you know, to me, this has always been the problem: is that the Rooney Rule was a broke ass idea for um, diversity, and and it's and it's honestly just mimicking corporate America for the most part, because yeah. corporate America has diversity programs or there or government groups and and corporate have had affirmative action and when you have diversity or affirmative action diversity is supposed to be a more modernized thing but really the problem is is that if you don't have inclusion with diversity then basically what you have is you have the what without the how right and and because diversity is just like well we've got to do this it doesn't mean that you're going to create a, uh, a an infrastructure, an environment where you're going to help measure, enable diversity to thrive. Because you can have diversity and have a committee of people and all the committee can be, you know, how white people see diversity. Right. You know, not how people of color or from different sexual orientations or gender or different, you know, different cultural or ethnic backgrounds see it and and their own experiences with it. So what ends up happening is you get a very patronizing approach, which is basically how white people think they can make this work. And again, the idea that black people or brown people or women or gay people need white people to make this work 
that's a very patronizing idea. And, and that's something that needs to be corrected because it's really about recognizing different ideas from different standpoints. And some cultures assimilate better than other cultures do, you know, and, you know, just talking to some of my, my friends who are Hispanic and talk about that it's easier to assimilate for them on the whole than it is for black people. Well, most of the time, most of the other cultures came here willingly. Black yeah. people, the only people who didn't come here willingly, you know, and as a result of that, you know, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, having conversations about how these points impact how people see things and how um, information is communicated, you know, how programs are put in place, how, you know, how processes are are formed. Some, you know, the issue isn't always, you know, ab and these things aren't always about whether or not the NFL is all racist. Okay. And, and racism is such a blanket term because you have yeah. your Ku Klux Klan hate racism. You have your ignorance racism, which is, you know, just not knowing well, but not hating, but your ideas may be really backwards because you just don't know better. Um, to being someone who wants to be helpful and be an ally, but doesn't know how because, again, you don't understand the other person's points of view and you're coming from your own limited experience to try and apply solutions to a problem or solutions to um, any type of project that requires the very people you're trying to help to be part of the answer and to be a big part of the answer. And they're more than willing and able if you get out of the way and be an ally by listening and helping them, you know, lead in the sense that they are leading and you are learning because you have, before you can help, you actually have to shut up and listen yeah, and like learn and understand and then offer your assistance where that may be helpful as that applies. And the problem here with the NFL isn't that the NFL is a bunch of racists. I think that's the nice, you know, that's the nice liberal ex example to, you know, the far left example is that the NFL is filled with racists. There, I'm sure there are plenty, just like there are who plenty of liberal racists out there too. You know, I mean, I'm liberal and I've, I've met my share. That's for sure. Um, but the, there's an interesting point that I heard recently where what often happens is that racism, this modern version of what we see with, you know, with a lot of things, with credit creditors, with hiring practices, with, you know, with, with certain, with um, real estate, things like that. A yeah. lot of it is that, that these things were created before civil rights, before slavery ended you know before jim crow was basically repealed and these structures and processes are still in place and were designed during those times and designed by people who had the intent to steer away from opportunities for black people and brown people and gay people and women and so what happens is that if you put someone if you put someone on a ship that has been designed to do a certain thing or designed to run a certain way and the navigation systems 
automatic and designed a certain way unless you override it and you don't understand the navigation system and you don't really understand the ship, then it's going to do what it does. Yeah. And it's the same thing with these processes. And I think with the NFL, just like their scouting processes are basically old and dusty and have cobwebs in them, um, you know, they finally put out the pasture, the Wonderlick. So, yeah. you know, I think that probably even, that must have gotten smelly. So they finally got rid of that. But just like the NFL's processes in that regard, their hiring practices are, are also smack of just old guard ways that may not be about racism. You know, some for some owners it is. I'm sure there's going to be some. But it's, but it's not overall about hatred it's about the the process being broken or being old and dated and people not thinking about it any other way because they're not for they haven't been forced to and the only way they're forced to is when someone makes a makes a big pr stink because this is what this is it's a big pr stink he just dropped a big pr bag and lighted it on of shit and lighted it on fire in front of their doorsteps and Let's not forget the timing here. This is the dead week before the Super Bowl, right? Yes. This is when... Ratings! Yeah. People are looking for stuff to talk about because we got a game in two weeks. There you go. You drop this in their lap right now. And you do it full well because next week when everybody's in L.A., the new home of you know their West Coast operation for the Super Bowl, everybody on Radio Row is going to have to talk about this. They're going to be forced to talk about this. So, so, what's your thoughts on Bill Belichick with involved <laughs> in all of this about right now? Do you think Bill Belichick? Are we gonna are we gonna say Bill Belichick is the evil genius who's saying, "Oh, Deflate Gate"? Okay, fuck all I, of you. Or is I'm it really like, more? Is this more Chase Stewart saying, "Is this a the ultimate boomer moment with his cell phone"? I think there are three equally logical possibilities here. <laughs> I think there is that evil genius of, I know my boy Brian is getting effed over here by the league, and I'm going to give him something to work with. I, and, and people will think I'm just an idiot boomer. I also think it's a possibility that he got it messed up sort of on the front end, and that he was told by somebody that we're hiring Brian, and he thought they meant Flores. Right. And that was the mix-up. It wasn't like he clicked the wrong button on his phone. Right. I think that's equally possible. But I also cannot help but be reminded of a fantastic moment between him and Greg Gumble, back when Gumble was doing games. I guess Gumble's still doing games. But talking about the, the time switch for daylight saving time. And he had a new car, and he couldn't figure out how to change the clock. It is like new van. And so I'm pretty sure that that guy might have a situation where he pulls out his phone and it's like, Brian, and it's probably like they're at the big font. And so the contacts, you just see like B-R-I dot, dot, dot. And you don't know which is which. And he just hammers the first B-R-I he sees because he's excited. And he's texting the wrong guy. Like, I think that's also plausible. So which one do I believe the most? I think the middle one that he got it wrong sort of on the front end and thought that they meant Brian Flores. I don't think he, I'd love to believe that Belichick is sort of pulling the strings here for, for Brian Flores, but I think he probably just got it messed up on the front end, but 
I, 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 like I said, I'd love to believe that Belichick was like, yeah, you, you done me wrong for Deflategate and Spygate. Here we go. See, I would like that to be the reason, like the, the that he like is the evil genius. And the only thing that would make it better is if he could somehow summon um, a giant demonic art model from the gates of hell where he exists, <laughs> where he could come up and just like swallow Roger Goodell and the ownership whole. And we'd yeah. have to start over and have to like get new owners for the nfl that would be fun but yeah. okay now that we've talked this to death let's let's talk some football some real football thoughts on joe burrow's career to this point i mean certainly the Bengals they provided him a strong supporting cast on offense but i'm thinking if they dropped him in minnesota this year with that offense that they have I think we would have seen the Vikings deep in the playoffs. Do you agree or do you disagree? I think so. I don't know if they go as deep. I, I do think, you know, it's something that I'm thinking about a ton and we can put a pin in this for later to come back to it. The relationship that was built between Chase and Burrow on the football field in college is a huge part of their success right now, you know, because in today's game with so many routes that convert and having to be on the same page and reading coverages the same way and understanding that like, yeah, what I see as too high, he's going to see as too high. What I see as too man, he's going to see as too man. That, that's critically important. So I, I think you wouldn't have that element. Although, Oh yes, you would. Oh, you have yes, Justin you Jefferson. Would. That's so the you question. Have that there. Yes. <laughs> Let me change my answer now. <laughs> Because I do think that that would make a huge, yeah. So with that in mind, yeah, I think you're right. They would, they would have made a deep run. Yeah, I think they absolutely would have had because he had the relationship with two. Now I don't think he would have had that run in in Carolina. Um, no. But I think Terrace Marshall might have been on the field a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. So or had a little more impact when he was on the field. Um, but yeah, I absolutely think he he was and. I mean, man, just the fact that, and the, the fact, kudos to the Bengals, that they outfitted him with three stud receivers in their roles. Because Chase, Chase is an all-pro receiver. Yeah. And then T. Higgins is like a top-end number two receiver. I know yeah. there are going to be a lot of people who say, he's a number one in a lot of other offenses. I don't think so. Based on how he the way he plays, he's that possession plus guy, yeah. and and there's nothing wrong with that. He's fantastic in the same way that um, that Boyd, that Tyler Boyd is a fantastic slot receiver, you know. And the fact that they have those three, and then Uzoma, you know, Uzoma coming to life, yeah. And what they have with Mixon and even Samaje Pirine, I mean Samaje Pirine, I remember liking him in the draft and just as a as a reserve, he's played fantastic football the past couple of seasons now for the role of what they expect from him. Um, you know, the offensive line has work to do, but, you know, Burrow's ability to create and his just his poise overall has been has just been tremendous. I mean, this is a team that if you were to begin in the year, you would laugh, especially if you're an AFC North fan like yeah. me and a lot of my other compatriots 
who are mostly Ravens or Steelers fans when they go, oh, the the watch out for the Cincinnati Bengals. We go, yeah, in a couple years, sure, when they get an offensive line and a defense. Well, yeah. they got the defense. The you know the the linebackers they have are pretty darn good. The 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 the, the back end of that defense is coming on, and suddenly you know now you're looking at also you know what they did on offense so quickly uh, it's just kind of, i mean yeah injuries had a lot to do with maybe that division yeah but you know they got to the game and they made the most of it the steelers got to the game they didn't do jack you know so yeah kudos to the Bengals and joe burrow wow just you know the maturation process has been fantastic so just gotta ask could matthew stafford have piloted the Bengals the way Burrow did. I think so. I mean, you know, I've always kind of had a soft spot for Stafford. Me too. And uh, I think, you know, I, I do think that he would have been able to do it a bit differently. I think Stafford would have had to survive behind that offensive line, not with sort of his mobility and athleticism, which I think is Burrow's way to do it. I think Burrow is sort of now that poster child of the guy that isn't a super athlete but can extend via you know footwork pocket strength play strength what awareness feel all that stuff i think stafford would have been just i'm ripping this quicker in the down like i'm getting it out of my hands early you know certainly back shoulder throws and things like that and you know he can move around a little bit i think he would have done it it just would have looked a little differently i'm gonna i'm gonna say he wouldn't have Really? And, and I'm a big fan of Matthew Stafford, but I think it's for the reasons you stated about why he would fit in Minnesota and why he why he was so good in, in Cincinnati is that Burrow has the rapport with Jamar Chase that's established. Matthew Stafford wouldn't have had that. He had trouble getting rapport with Robert Woods early on. Now, he had great rapport with Cooper Cup, but Cooper Cup's a veteran in the league. So somebody had to guide the young guy to... You know what I mean? It's like for Chase, you had to, he needed to have somebody who would guide him and say, listen, this is what this is. Here's some of the cheat code things we can kind of talk about. This is similar to what we did at LSU, but, you know, it's going to be slightly different here. I think that the fact that Burrow could be that kind of transitioning, transitioning type of step was something that Stafford might not have. And more importantly, while Matthew Stafford can run around probably better, well, not better than Burrow. He can. He used to be able to run around as well as Burrow, if not a little better. He's not quite that mobile anymore. But still, he's a guy who takes hits. And he's yeah. tough. And I just don't think they had the line for him to stay upright and healthy for, you know, in the way that Burrow can move around. And I just think that the way Stafford is doesn't mean Stafford's not as good as Burrow. It's just that Stafford wasn't the right fit to make the most out of what the Bengals would require him to be. And I think that that lack of that, that anchor in the pocket that he would be would cost him. I would be, I'd be betting more on that. I could see your point and believe that that could happen, but I would be more inclined to think Matthew Stafford with another broken back, you know, vertebrae in his back is out six weeks and the Bengals go down the, down the tubes and never get into the playoffs. You know, that's kind of where I, I see that possibility. Now, speaking of, you know, speaking of players who, you know, and their scouting reports, Jimmy Garoppolo. 
Did he play to his scouting report last weekend? Is that like indicative of what you would say about him? Or would you say that all this, you know, I, I, we could literally say he said, she said between Jeff Garcia and Mina Kimes from last really week, could. right? Um, but, but, you know, did Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, I watched, the, I watched the end of the game. I didn't see most of the game. I've been scouting a lot of players and that's the one game I didn't watch. Um, but I did watch the final couple of series. And uh, I thought he played to a scouting report. You know, to me is he's he's achingly close to being very good, and that achingly close is those three to five plays a game. And when the pressure mounts, it's clutch moment. It's big time football. You know, these are the things that he misses, and it sounds cliche, but it's real because this is the. You know, in high school football, it's just being out there under the lights, whether you can handle it. In college football, it's about can you can you perform well against the rival and in the bowl games. You know, in the NFL, it's not even it, it might be the playoffs, but I think it's now about deep into the playoffs and those that final drive, those final two drives. Can you can you be the one? That's the stage, the equivalent of the high school of just getting on the field. And I think when it comes to to that moment, that's where Garoppolo just his game does his game shrinks away. You know, it's just for whatever reason. And listen, to be serious about this in a moment, you know, if you're just a you know, most fans would just say, Well, yeah, he stinks because he can't do that or that's not fair. I would just say it's hard. This is an example of why it's so hard to be a quarterback. And he's he's a is he a good quarterback? Is he an average quarterback? You know, for the NFL, he's a decent quarterback, a decent starting quarterback. But decent doesn't get you to the Super Bowl unless you have a super team. And the 49ers are just a little shy of that on offense and defense. Um, and I think that's where, where we're at. Do you agree, disagree? Word of thoughts? I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think I have always been a fan of sort of tiering quarterbacks to begin with. And I do very much like the idea of quarterbacks you win with versus quarterbacks you win because of. And I very much think Mina nailed it when she described Garoppolo as a guy you win with. Like... Garoppolo missed a multitude of throws in that game that could have changed the course of the game. He missed one early. He missed a couple late. Like, And I understand, okay, you might say, well, the thumb was really bothering him. He needs surgery. And as somebody that had that injury and had that surgery, yeah, I, I, I get it. But then think back to their previous Super Bowl. He had an opportunity to win that game. He had an opportunity to win that game on his hand, and he missed it. And he was healthy now. And, you know, those – Three to five plays per game that you and I have talked about this entire season of shows, right? And it started with Baker Mayfield, and it's been other quarterbacks, and now it's Garoppolo. That's the difference between being a guy you win with and a guy you win because of. Yep. Like, if you can hit those three to five, you're a guy you can win games with. Baker's not. Garoppolo's not. Does it mean that they're bad quarterbacks? No. It means that they're NFL average to decent quarterbacks that need circumstances to be right around them. They're still among the 32 people on the planet that can do this job, which in and of itself makes you pretty good at it. Yeah. 
But when we're talking about just 32 people, we've got to be pretty strict about those that can really do it and those that can kind of do it and need a little bit of help or a lot of help along the way. And Garoppolo is one of those guys. Now, will there be a market for Jimmy Garoppolo this free agency cycle? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, if I'm a team like Washington or Carolina or another team that, like – Don't say it. (laughs) I'm just saying – like, there's going to be a market for Jimmy Garoppolo yes, because a lot of teams will look at what they've got and say, all right, like yeah. that's still an upgrade. Uh, some teams might look at the incoming quarterback class and say, we got it. We have no choice. We, we don't have a choice. Like, maybe we'd still draft a guy, but we're not trusted in week one, Yeah, you know? And, yeah. and so there will still be a market for him. It will still be a starting. I have no qualms about the idea that he's going to be a starting quarterback somewhere week one next year but he's not the guy that people thought that he could be he's just he is who he is he's a solid nfl starting quarterback there's nothing wrong with that but you're going to need things to be really good in place around him to get to where you want to be as a team don't put him under pressure with less than two minutes left to where he's going to make the boneheaded decision because you you know you got to hold on to that ball, take the sack. You don't make that backhanded throw to, to yeah, I mean, that was bad. I think the previous drive where they had the, the real quick three and out, yeah, that was bad. And I think the third play, the third down, like incompletion, he was trying to take a timeout because it looked like he turned and the ball got snapped and the, the whole team looked bad in that moment, which again gets you to the point of everybody needs to be – the other ten need to be really good around him. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, it's, like – you got to have everything in place around him. It's like the, it's like the, it's like the stammering, the nervous stammering attorney, defense attorney, and my cousin Vinny. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like if your quarterback reverts to that guy when it's time for you to have to defend the client, um, yeah, that's 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 not a good thing. So, yeah. all right, Senior Bowl, the Senior Bowl in Mobile, and. Um, I did get a tweet from Cecil Lammy. I cannot share what he said other than that it's raining outside um, and and that the, the, the city's kind of a mess due to the rain right now. So, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of people telling me right now that you and I made the right decision here. <laughs> because I, I li- I'm literally looking at, on my other screen right here, clips from practice, and it's miserable. Like people are the, the those that are brave enough to stand outside are wearing ponchos. Now they're at the newer stadium, so there's like some covered areas where everybody's cramped together and watching. You mean Jay Clazier and like Fox and CBS and Daniel Jeremiah? They're all getting well, they're, cozy they're, with they're each other. Stuff. Oh, they are. That's true. But there's the way the stadium's set up. There are some like covered areas. Oh, well, nice. So you can get stay dry. They've already said that they're moving practice inside for tomorrow. So people, and it's going to be like sort of closed off to only like media partners. There's going to be a lot of people picking oh, like up. Oh, like usual. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then at the same time, <laughs> you have people tweeting from Las Vegas about the Shrine Bowl. And it's like, hey, we're a beautiful Allegiant Stadium. Stadium. <laughs> Study at 72 here in Vegas today. And so there's going to be a very interesting dichotomy. If these two games remain on the same week next year, what people are going to do. But yeah, um, fun times down in Mobile right now. For sure. So what what is your normal Senior Bowl routine when when it comes to when you do visit? 
Because I think um, a lot of people would like to know kind of what goes on. Because sometimes you hear on Twitter, oh, it's all networking. And all they do is drink and get drunk. You know, because that's what the young people think. And then, you know, and, and they act like they're doing work. But what are they really doing? There's a lot of that, too. Um, I mean, when I went down there the first time or two, that was the focus, was was meeting people and networking and trying to build some relationships. But, you know, the last time I was down there, I was, you know, a bit more, last couple of times I was down there, I was a bit more established. And so settled into more of the elder statesman routine, so to speak, where, you know, I, I used to fly in first thing Tuesday morning and, you know, really try to like light the candle at both ends. Now, you get in at a relatively decent time Monday afternoon. You get yourself settled in, catch up. The last time we were down there, we had a nice dinner. And, uh, I think we were at Loda Beer Garden. Um, you know, we had a dinner there, uh, catch up with some people, you know. But then, you know, Tuesday, it, it's a business trip. It, it's a work day. You get work done in the morning. Um, <laughs> you know, that was the way in morning. You know, you write about that awkward process. Thankfully, they've gotten rid of that. They've sort of just done it behind closed doors now and just released the data, which I think is a, a nicer way to do things. Let's just put it that way, because yeah. the idea of a bunch of, let's face it, mostly men watching guys in their underwear pray to the cross of stage. Yeah, there's a lot to that, yeah. you know, that, that we don't know. Yeah. Um, but that it's I always set myself up and, you know, this in the end zone. Like I, I didn't walk around, move around. I was in the end zone to get myself as much as possible because my, my focus was always primarily quarterback play into the minds. I have quarterbacks, whether it's seven on seven, whether it's team, whether it's whatever drill, like try to get myself into their field of vision as much as possible. And so I would be perched up as high as I could in the end zone with that view pretty much all day for both practices. Um, and then look, you get done and you write and work until dinner. You have dinner, you write and work until you're done. And if that's 11 PM, 12 PM, whatever it is, I mean, 12 AM midnight, you do that. And then if you've got energy, like, yeah, you can go to Veets, you can go out, you can see people, but at my age, it, it's not a time to go out and start drinking because you get to have to get up and do it all over again. And so, you know, you, you've got to get your rest. You've got to sort of sleep. I mean, our, our buddy Jeff Risden was, you know, telling us last night, he's like, I'm going to bed, man. Maybe I'll see people out tomorrow, but I, I need to sleep. Like, you, you, you got to take care of yourself. And so, um, but it's a, it's a work trip. I mean, that's what it is. Is there networking that you should do? Yes, but you can do that in the stands. You can do that, you know, in between practices. You can say hello to people and things like that. Um you know, it doesn't all have to be done at Veets or uh, various other establishments at night. You could do it over dinner. You could do it, you know, at the Renaissance when you go in to watch film because they have the film room set up there. And so, you know, early enough when I was a little bit younger, yeah, it was we're going to go blow off some steam and have some fun and do some networking. But now it's more of a this is a full on business trip. Yeah. I mean, I think for me. Early on, it was, let me see what these practices are like. Let me report on the practices. And I was very focused on trying to take notes on every little detail I saw in terms of how the practices were structured, who was positioned where, in terms of what position groups, where they were on the field. So on day one, so I could kind of figure out 
my plan of attack for watching the rest of the practices. I used to go to the interviews and and do the media day and interview players. When I was doing the New York Times blog, I would do that um, fairly routinely and, and interview players, um, which was an interesting experience for sure. Um, but I've abandoned that and I, I can talk about that more down the line. But, um, you know, because I went with Cecil early on and Cecil knew a lot of people, he, he was able to network me with a number of people that I could get to know, you know, just through meals. Russ Landy, Chad Ryder, we'd have dinner with those guys, um, you, you know, you know, and then I would start to meet people on my own, like, you know, um, Teron Davenport yeah. and Emery and, you know, Brandon Howard and, um, you know, getting to, you know, getting to meet you, getting to meet Doug Farrar, you know, folks right. like that. So it was, it was those types of things that are very helpful to writers because you can have conversations, meet the name, get the name with the face and they get a chance to talk with you. Then they start looking at your work a little bit more and then they start recommending your work a little bit more, you know, based on whether there's a need or, or just because they, they like what they see, you know, different types of combinations of, of things that happen when opportunities come about that way. So that was always very helpful. Um, you know, I mean, like Russ Landy is a good example of someone who I interviewed to do a story on, um, as opposed to just talk shop about the draft. He thought for the longest time that I was just a like a beat reporter or an NFL reporter and that I wasn't doing any scouting. Um, and I, I think it took him a number of years. And then finally, he, you know, he came around and goes, dude, I didn't even like came up next to me at a senior bowl maybe five or six years ago. I was like, I didn't even know you did this stuff because I remember right. how I met you. And then I, 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 I you know, there are people who did work with GM Jr. with me and saw this and then, you know, that kind of that that kind of thing. But, you know, I would say for me, I didn't sleep much during the senior bowl um, because I, like you, yeah, you do the work between practice, you know, after practice, before dinner, then after dinner. And then I'd find that studying if I wanted to study the tape and do like breakdowns then I'd be up all night. Like I might get two, three hours sleep at most um, throughout that week. Um, and then inevitably um, try and catch up on my sleep when I got back um, or probably wind up with a little bit of a cold, which is what, which was what, what was kind of normal at that point um, yeah. because everything going on there. So, you, you know, it, it's a fantastic experience because you do, you, you get to see a lot of different things and meet a lot of different people and the opportunities that come with it. But I would say we would stay usually to through Thursday and then leave Friday morning. We wouldn't stay yeah. for the game. Um, you know, in the past, I've, now we've tried a lot of number of different ways of viewing practices and I'll walk around a little bit um, and I like to go, like when there's 11 on 11s, I'll come up to the, to the top of the stadium and see you and, and kind yeah. of hang out there. You know, when it comes to certain drills, I like to cover the wide receivers the most. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll go to like the 50 or to, or towards a certain sideline where I, where I feel like I get a good vantage point. The way the senior bowls changed though, 
is that back in the day, you could literally be at the fence next to the field and see and be like, and really move around and, and be everywhere. Now it's only, that used to only be reserved for media partners for the past, I think six or seven years now. Yeah. And that that's probably the part that's most disappointing is that I understand why they did it and I get that they, they had to do it. But as someone who was able to, you know, walk around and see things up close and literally catch a ball if somebody missed one, you know, and throw it back, you know, it was fun and hear what the coaches were saying without having to watch it on, on TV. So, yeah, you know, but, you know, thinking about the game, there's a lot of good things about the game. I mean, the interviews are a big part of it for the teams um, and the coach, you know, the the players and the and the team interviews, that's probably the biggest reason why they're there. Okay. I mean, I certainly, you know, how they perform can be helpful, but I also think it generates a lot of false positives, you know, and part of that is that there's a lot of media people there with varying levels of experience, varying perspectives, um, varying levels of, um, you know, of knowledge and, you know, and I think what happens is that there's some things that I think help that will help media and fan. There's some things that just get them really excited. So I just want to know what are some things in your opinion that help media and fans maybe temper their excitement or, or on the other end, keep them from being too harsh? Yeah. I mean, what's been interesting during my time sort of at these games, at these practices is spending time, even though I'm so focused on quarterbacks, with people that are watching the trench play. And I know I've talked about this before, but you know, one of the more popular drills at every practice is the O-line, D-line one-on-ones because everybody gets excited about pass rush and stuff like that. And, but in talking to people like Owen Reese and Brandon Thorne and people that have either played O-line or study O-line, it's a drill that is really slanted towards the defense, you know, because it's a one-on-one, but the linemen, the pass rushers, they're given, opportunities to use two-way goes which you know if, if, in some pass protection schemes you know you're sliding to the right guy goes inside of you guard's going to pick him up the center's going to pick him up you don't care and the pass rushers might not have a true two-way go you know in a game situation like they're supposed to get into a gap they're supposed to do one thing or the other now maybe look Vaughn Miller off the edge you'll let him have a two-way go and things like that but it's tilted towards the defense in a sense. And so if you hear reports like, oh, this guy's getting beat up in one-on-ones, this guy's giving up pressure all the time, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You have the, there's the opportunity now to watch the practice film, like watch it. You know, if you hear a report that, oh, this guard's getting destroyed in one-on-ones, but then you watch it and he's getting hit with a double move late to the inside. Okay. But, in a game situation, if it's a three-man slide or even a four-man slide that way, he's just going to pass that off to the, the center. You know, it's it's not going to be a loss for him. And so, you know, I, I think there's a temper that needs to be done in that sense. I think when you start hearing one-on-ones, you know, receivers versus corners, and like, oh, this guy's getting cooked left and right. Yeah, but he ran a triple move Hunter Renfro route on a three-step quick game concept, the ball is going to be out. Like, and, and I'm kind of giggling because I watched Kyle Phillips yesterday. And then I went back and watched one of your videos on him. Because I was like, 
I wrote on the top of my notes <laughs> a potential comp, and I'm like, this guy is a walking ladder drill. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, I know Matt did a video on him, and it was one is too much a good thing because he's there doing all this stuff, and then he turns and falls by it. Yep. And like, you know, and, and so there's got to be like a temperate of expectations where, yeah, somebody's dusting people left and right. And it's like, well, great. Does a quarterback have six seconds in the pocket to let that route play out? He might not. And so I, when it comes to studying receiver routes and stuff, if you're seeing somebody go through like six chop steps and then a push inside and then six more chop steps and then a break outside, it looks nice on film. The quarterback's picking himself up, or the ball's somewhere else by the time he makes that break. And so, you know, you got to temper your expectations that way as well. I love all those explanations. And absolutely, with wide receivers, they get that two-way go in the slot a lot. And you see that, and it's like, forget about it. And the same thing with any type of tight end or wide receiver who doesn't have to face any kind of jam at the line. And, right. I, and the theme of this is there's not a lot of hitting for skill players. And so to borrow the Mike Tyson quote that everyone looks great until they get hit and punched in the mouth, well, that applies to running backs very well in this particular instance because um, running backs, what happens in these practices is they run through a hole, somebody hits them in the pads, they slow down slightly, but they don't get wrapped and dropped because they can't be wrapped and dropped. So then they 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 keep moving their legs until the running until the linebacker or the defender says okay we'll let you go and then they run to the you know as far as they can until they need to come back for you know um, after that so you know basically when I look at this it's fine that someone makes good decisions without the threat of getting really hit you know that's one thing but after you've been like you know spine busted by a defensive tackle in the backfield on a play where maybe you made a risky decision, but you need to make that risky decision again. Are you going to do it again in, right. in a real football game? Or are you going to be gun shy? Cause there's some players on that field. I will tell you, um, you know, uh, who I think I wonder about one of them is that Arizona, Arizona state running back Rashad white, who's a nice athlete and make some good decisions, but he's better in space than when he is when he gets punched in the mouth a little bit. Yeah. And I'm not saying he's bad, but I would say that's something to just keep an eye on. And the same things with quarterbacks. It's easy to make easier to make decisions when you don't have anybody bearing down on you and nailing you. Um, yeah. And to to me, all these guys deserve to be there. All these guys deserve to have to be looked at. But this is kind of a there's a little bit of dog and pony show going on with some of this stuff to the yeah. extent that, you know, um, you're, you're really playing towards people who haven't seen these guys before or maybe don't, don't have a good process for how to look at them. And some of those people are NFL people, um, you know, like it or not. Um, so, but a lot of the NFL people are there for the networking too. Because yep. when you watch the if you watch the scouts, they do a lot of talking and they're sitting there yakking it up with their friends because they've already done most of their scouting reports. Yeah, they they got to be there, but it's like, you know, it's they're not taking. I I rarely see a scout taking notes. Yeah, while the I'm bulk there. of the, they're there to do cross check stuff, 
and to interview players. Yeah. Like, like that's the stuff that they're really doing. And as I said on my BGN show with Rachel, the dark secret, it's really not a dark secret at this point. Everybody's out of town by Thursday. Yeah. Like you and I have been at many a Thursday practice when it's like ghost town. There's 30 people here. Yeah. Like there's, there's a handful of people here. The teams are gone. Most of the big media is gone. Like everybody pulls up tents and leaves. Yeah. Like and so the work is done Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday with interviews, with some medical stuff, with measurements. They check their boxes. They do some cross check. They have some meetings and then it's all right, we're all, we'll see y'all in India in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll play a little round. We'll play some quick answer stuff here. Um, who's the quarterback that has a lot to gain this week's event? Who do you think he has the most to gain? Kenny Pickett and Carson Strong. Yeah. Um, Pickett, I think the hand size is going to be a thing. It, it It's going to be a thing. And as we're talking right now, they're, they're in the rain and people are saying, oh, he's struggling to throw the bigger ball in the rain with the glove. Like it, it's going to be an issue. The hand size thing is going to be an issue this entire draft cycle. With Strong, it's the medicals. Like, but – his arm is checking boxes and I don't think we should be surprised by that. The biggest part of the pre-draft process for him is going to be those medical checks at the combine because if a team can satisfy themselves from a medical standpoint, that the knee condition is not degenerative, it's not going to cut his career short, that you're going to get potentially a 10, 12, 15 year career out of him. He could be QB one. Like he literally could be, um, but the medical thing is going to be huge. I also think, in a sense, Willis, just because I think he's going to look great down there. And I've already heard reports from yesterday. I haven't watched, full disclaimer, I haven't watched any of the practice film. But people, are, he's going to look great in this. And people are going to see Josh Allen, and they're going to talk themselves into it, and I understand it. So he could certainly benefit as well. Yeah, who has the most to lose? I mean, in a weird way, I want to say Pickett. Um, because if this continues and the hand size, it, if people walk away from particularly today's practice in the rain, which again, we're, we're talking as it's happening, that he's going to struggle in weather with a bigger football. That's going to be a problem for him. Yeah. I'm, I agree with you on that because Malik Willis doesn't have as much, he has more to gain than he has to lose. Everybody yeah. already sees him as an erratic player who has highs yeah. and lows. So yeah. They, you know, they already, they, I think they feel like they know who he is, even if they're wrong. They, right. they, they feel that way. Strong, I mean, I think Strong is also the one who has the most to gain because he's already kind of seen as a guy that, well, he's not that mobile. So he's not that running quarterback. But when they see him do actual real quarterback things, which can include moving around a pocket, um, I think they'll forget about the, um, trendy thing for a moment and go right he can do the things that the baseline things we're asking a, a starting quarterback in the NFL to do you know so yeah I'm with you on that so um what give give me any you can give me up to three if you want but give me I, I want some of your funniest senior bowl stories that you can share um let's see I think my first one one of my favorites is from Owen Reese, who I know I mentioned, but he was watching, it was a couple years ago um, when the Broncos were one of the coaching staffs and Nick LaDuca was the linebacker out of North Dakota State. They were just doing some, you know, technique work with bags or something like that. 
and their linebackers coach, Laduca, kept screwing it up. And their linebackers coach was just like, Laduca, you can't figure this out? Fuck the draft. You better go home right now. (laughs) Imagine being like a kid in college and you're like, I'm going to the senior bowl. This is great. And your first Patrick, your first like drill, an NFL linebacker coach is basically telling you to get on a plane and go home. Like that's just, that's incredible. Um, I I do think this is a non-football one, but we tell this story every senior bowl this comes up. This was, it is not political in a sense, but this is after Trump was inaugurated. Okay. And our buddy, um, I'll just name him, Shane Alexander. <laughs> he's on hes on his phone and he's telling us that Trump's inaugural speech was taken right from the B movie. That, that Seinfeld cartoon yeah. where he portrays a B. And we're like Shane no that's not right that's not right he's like no 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 I'm looking at this website snopes.com and he shows it to us and we're like Shane did you scroll down because if you scroll down it says in huge big red bold letters false and he had it scrolled down so ever since then we've been talking about that and I think just to, to, to pat myself on the back what am I one of my prouder senior bowl moments was the first year I was down there. It was one of those Thursday practices and it was in the rain. It was the Carson Wentz year. And it was a Thursday afternoon. It was like me, it was you, it was Sigmund, Chuck Zotta, like Charles McDonald, Derek Clawson, just like seven people left in the end zone. And it was before practice and the, the centers and quarterbacks were working on shotgun snaps. And, Cody Kessler and Carson Wentz were side by side. And at the same time, both centers snapped it high. And one went over Cody Kessler's head and the other Carson was able to catch. And I was just like, well, that's why I draft Carson because he's tall, man. That's got to check a lot of boxes. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And I felt like George Costanza. I wanted to be like, all right, well, I'm out. I'm out. It's been great, everybody. It's been fun, but I'm going to leave now. And yeah, but those were those were three that always sort of stick with me. I'd say one of the funniest ones for me was watching some guy who obviously had to do a last minute assignment for his local paper in Alabama to, to do a media night. And he was interviewing Alabama receiver Kevin Norwood. And it's clear that he must have been like the home and garden editor and was sent to do some sports um, because he was like, so you know, what do you think you're going to run in the 40? And and Kevin Norwood says, probably somewhere in 4.5 to 4.6. And he goes, he goes, wow, that's really slow. You know? <laughs> and Norwood's like, that's not slow. What do you think slow is? And he goes, no, he, go, he goes, yeah, he goes, he goes, well, anything anything over four four has got to be really slow you know or something like that yeah so there was wow. that um the i would say i've told the john elway story a lot where i've met john elway and two people diss john elway who were former players in a starbucks so I've, yeah. that one i've told the the best one out is the cecil lammy story with jim miller and yeah. um take your eye out, pat kerwan Gene, Gene, Cecil, and I usually make a little ritual after we get all our work done on a usually Wednesday or Thursday night. 
we we went to a steakhouse we went to a steakhouse and and Cecil's talking and and he's just have he's just letting loose and he's telling a story about being on Radio Row and next to Jim Miller and at that point Jim Miller had gained a fair bit of weight former quarterback for the Bears and and Cecil Cecil's like he's like and Jim Miller who by the way Jim Miller who you know actually must have eaten Jim Miller you know and then continues on to the story talking about that and he remarked that well Gene Gene starts Gene's kind of looking odd when Cecil says that and then just says very nonchalantly he goes yeah Cecil I think that's Jim Miller behind you at the bar with Pat Kerwan <laughs> and, and literally not you know 10 feet from us there they are both standing you know both sitting there with us and you hear Pat Kerwan start talking talking about maybe meeting some people outside to have a fight and maybe we should talk about you know basically how how much Jim Miller ate Jim Miller you know yep. kind of thing yeah now Pat now again Pat Kerwan Pat Kerwan is probably I would have to think is 20 year old 20 years older than me and I'm the oldest guy at that table with Cecil and and Gene and I so this is kind of like a Bob Barker Adam Sandler you know right. you know type of moment on the golf course more than anything so they walk by and then you know Jim um, and Pat Kerwan says another thing just kind of as they walk by and leave and um, you know and me and Gene are just trying not to laugh because Cecil's just yeah. mortified he feels so bad you know and uh, and we keep egging him on the whole night talking about how they're probably out there in the parking lot waiting for us right Wait. now we're going to have an anchorman style brawl with a bunch <laughs> of football writers you know and ex-football jocks and GMs and you know what's going to happen we go to jail for beating on an old man you know or what's going to be worse we beat up an old man or this old man beats us up you know so you know we were having lots of fun just being rowdy and talking about that we went out there and and they were gone but Jim Miller yeah. had some dirty looks and things to say to Cecil and I think Cecil had made his amends with Jim after that um, but it was a, a pretty funny story that Cecil told later so I would say those two were pretty good though I gotta say seeing Ben Solak pop out of the hood of a trunk of a car um, <laughs> in his early days was probably one of the oddest things I saw was that y'all made him ride in the trunk of a car so so Ben Solak's gone from trunk of the car to being on the Dan LeBetard show. Um, yeah. You know, so I would say from trunk to from trunk to ESPN isn't a bad come up for uh No, for I mean I, ben I guess the portal to sports media stardom runs through Mike Kiss's Ultima. Yeah, there we go. Well, <laughs> maybe you and I need to like hitch a ride. Seriously, there, Kiss, you know? let me hop in the trunk of the Altima for a bit. There we go. You know, I'm sure. That, I'm sure maybe his head hit a tire iron or something there and gave him superpowers. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. But uh, or he was just a smart football writer from the get go. Um, I think that's probably what it is too. Um, so. Give me a few players that you've watched closely that you're going to watch closely this week. Um, you know, in terms of just even if it's just not setting their tape, you just want to keep a, a tight eye on them. I know that, you know, I know that the three quarterbacks that you mentioned already are probably 
on that list. But other than those guys. Um, Trey McBride, the tight end, Colorado State. Jeremy Rucker, tight end, Ohio State. Um, those are two guys. I actually did uh, Rucker, my film on him yesterday. Um, kind of intrigued by him, but hearing a lot of buzz about how he's doing right now has me excited to sort of watch what he's done at practice and sort of keep an eye on him. Um, Dubs, the Nevada wide receiver. Um, very excited about him. I, I did some initial film stuff on him. I need to circle back. Um, but, uh, really excited about, about him, you know, might be sort of your prototypical X type guy. Um, who else? I know there was somebody else that I was excited about, but there, that name's, but those are three for right now. Jaquez Ezard out of, uh, uh, the Sam Houston State 5'9", 193. I'm interested to, to hear how that goes with him. He, apparently, he's had a good start to practices, or at least he looks fast. Um, you know, Braylon Sanders out of Ole Miss, I like him. So I want to see a little bit more, in, you know, about what, how he does in one-on-ones and some of the things that, he, from what I've seen on tape, I like that. And I'd say Cole Turner out of Nevada. Yeah. He was a former Clemson recruit who I really liked what I saw from his game as a receiver, um, you know, at Nevada thus far. Those are guys there, um, you know, and there's guys I just know who are going to be good, like, you know, Jerome Ford. I'm not worried about him. Like, a guy like him, I'm really high on. I just think, you know, but we'll see what happens with running back from that standpoint. Um, You know, I would say, you know, Oh, let's see. It, let's end this on this. Um, give me an odd football take that you're considering having right now, but you don't want to be held to it because you just haven't quite solidified it. I kind of teased this earlier. The Washington Commanders are going to draft Sam Howell to pair him with DME Brown, and they're going to reverse engineer the Burrow and Chase or the Tua and Waddle or the Hertz and Devonta Smith or the, dare we say, Mac Jones and John Mechie third quarterback receiver relationship. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Again, like I, I do think that there is a need to, you know, condense that time frame to get receiver and quarterback on the same page. And so I think that's why we've seen a lot of teams draft a quarter, uh, draft a receiver for their young quarterback. But I think Washington's going to flip the script on that. And they're going to draft Sam Howell to pair with DME Brown. Interesting. All right. My odd football take. While I think Traylon Burks is a top receiver prospect in this class in terms of in the top two tiers, depending on how you delineate first or second tier. Um, I think that the excitement about him is overstated. And I think it's because part of it is the Debo Samuel Cordero Patterson fest that happened in the NFL. But I jokingly call him um, Debo Patterson or Cordero Samuel. Yeah, and I think, and I'm still figuring out which is which with him. Uh, there's a little Des Bryant 
to him as well in terms of the physicality or you could say even Terrell Owens kind of the old school just give me slants baby and make me overpower people and run through them and and I can and what he's big strong fast in the open field can really knows how to run he can go up and win those fade routes he's gotten better at being able to use his hands on those things but ask this guy to defeat press coverage and he's basically got two moves and NFL guys are going to realize that. And when he doesn't have two moves, guess what he tries to do? Run over people. Yeah. And if you're a scrambling quarterback like Mark Schofield, who's <laughs> out in, who's in the pocket and, you know, and you have a, you know, you have a second read that should be coming from the backside into an open zone. And what Traylon Burks decided to do rather than to have a plan to use his hands to avoid the defender with inside shade or manipulate him. Instead, he decided he was going to just try and run him over. Well, you're going to see him in the process of running over the guy and go, well, he's not open. Now I have to scramble. Now I've got to eat the ball. And I've seen that repeatedly on his tape, and it concerns me a bit because, you know, where Debo struggles a little bit with press coverage early in his career, you know, he's still a pretty decent route runner. Right. You know, Cordero Patterson certainly is a, you know, a good player trying to, in terms of if you find the right fit for him, I think that's where this guy stands. Is he kind of, I haven't seen him make a hard break once because right. Arkansas doesn't ask him to. Now I've only watched six games of his, but I've watched two years of tape. And usually when you watch at least four games of a player, you kind of get an idea of what he's asked to do in the scheme. So yeah. if you don't see at least one hard break in a game per game, then he's not asked to do it. If you only see one hard break in an entire set of games or no games at all, I saw one speed break in, I think, five or six games of his right now. That's that's telling that he doesn't have to run anything other than he's running fades, crossers, wide routes, you know, um, double moves occasionally that require don't require. That's the most hard break I've seen is him drop his hips a little bit on that. And so if you're expecting like instant impact from him, it's going to have to be like a perfect fit with the system and it could happen. But I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking he's not a bill of goods, but he's not people expecting instant success I am starting to think not quite there. If I want instant yeah. success, there's about four or five other receivers I'd probably rather consider, and it depends on the fit with the system we have here. So he that's does. He point. does seem in watching him very scheme dependent. Yeah, like I do think a place like Philly could be perfect for him. Where you've already got Smith to do the, the the hard break, that kind of stuff, and you could give him that vertical tree, which is basically nines, eights, sixes, like stuff where it doesn't need to be and he's hard. He's good at it. He's, yeah, he's good at very good at it. Yes, yeah, and and I would I would agree with that, and it would probably be good to do that because honestly, Devonta Smith is while he was very good with Mac Jones on a lot of those vertical routes, 
it's not translating to the NFL very well, if you ask right. me. He's just he gets pinned to the boundary too easily. Um, you know, NFL corners are much savvier, much more patient, much more physical, and I think Smith is not quite that guy at this point. So um, hopefully, this was your podcast and not not quite your podcast. Um, so we you know we hope you enjoyed this. Um, you know, obviously we have a little more relaxed vibe in the off season here, um, but um, we hope you enjoyed it. You can find more of it at um, Matt Waldman's RSP Cast, um, and of course you can find Mark Schofield at TD Wire. You can find his great work, you know, on YouTube. You can find him on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter. And again, get your RSP or get the uh, pre-draft version of it. And thanks again, guys. Have a fantastic week and enjoy your family in this off week of football before. The yeah, because you won't see him next weekend <laughs> or they'll be watching commercials with you. Yeah. <laughs>